Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Sam Harris, neuroscientist, philosopher, New York Times bestselling author of five books. We're going to have a conversation today spanning the topics of neuroscience, moral philosophy, religion, meditation, and rationality, as well as the illusion of self. So thank you for being with me today, and I hope you enjoy. Sam, it's great to have you here today on my podcast. I first want to thank you for having me on your podcast a bit ago. You're an individual who has a great deal of interest spanning a wide area including neuroscience, philosophy, religion, political polarization, rationality, and a number of others. I wanted to uh, sort of skip around on a few of these topics, hopefully ultimately ending up uh, discussing this concept of the illusion of self. But one of the things I'm interested in and have been a student of, although certainly not an expert, is various religious practices. And as you know, I probably gravitate more towards Buddhism. I enjoyed your book, Into Faith, and found it quite provocative. But what does interest me is how is it that in this day and age, people hold deeply these practices? You know, I can understand, uh, you know, three or 4,000 years ago, uh, because of lack of knowledge, that people could create religion based on faith because of the unknown. But it seems strange that people hold on to these beliefs so tightly in this day and age. Well, I think the the reasons are are pretty timeless. I don't think uh, four thousand years has mattered all that much, given the reality of death. Right? I mean, it's, it's just the it's the finiteness of human life, the fact that we lose ultimately everything and everyone we love even in the best possible case, right? I mean, even if, if, even if you're the luckiest person on earth, you just have to wait around long enough and you'll your phone will start ringing and you'll start getting all the bad news of the, the people who you care about dying and disappearing. So I think that really explains the durability of religion. Yeah, I think without death, what, what we call religion for the most part, you know, certainly faith-based religion, would be more or less unthinkable. But given that science has not cured us of the problem of death and, and impermanence generally, and it hasn't given us a clear picture of the, the underlying metaphysics of, of consciousness, so we, we, it's still somewhat mysterious as to how consciousness is entangled with the physics of things, um, that it just it leaves enough room. There's just this this uh, kind of God-shaped hole, or or you know heaven-shaped hole in people's sense of their own mortality and their understanding of of the the mind-body problem. That it's um, yeah, I, I, mean, I think that explains it. I can appreciate that aspect. Um, there are a couple other uh, things I wanted to talk about, though. One is is the concept of an existential crisis associated with our finiteness, then I think the other is that 
we evolved from hunter-gatherer tribes uh, in groups that usually didn't exceed 150 or so. And at least in the literature I've read, it's because um, you really couldn't keep track of people beyond that number or regulate their behavior. And thus, that is one of the reasons why we created a narrative of an omniscient God. And in each culture, of course, there is a certain religious practice oriented towards that culture. Now, I, I appreciate exactly what you said, but still, what confounds me is, as an example, people talk about the inerrant word of the Bible, or this concept of an absolute truth based on these uh, religious texts. But religious scholars look at these more as allegorical tales, and that's really what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I, you know, it really just depends which religion you're talking about and and which flavor of adherence you're talking about. You know, obviously, most of the major religions have their their continuum between you know liberal on the one hand and and ultra orthodox on the other, and and it's just um, you know in in that first book, the end of faith, I was arguing that there's a um, an unfortunate asymmetry there with respect to the the theological bona fides of the you know, the various places on the continuum. As you get more and more liberal, which is to say more and more allegorical, more and more clever in, in how you you ignore the, the worst parts of scripture, um, if you're honest about that process, what you I think what you have to con- conclude is that you're learning to ignore or you're deciding to ignore the worst parts of Scripture, not because Scripture itself gives you clear guidance that that's okay, because in almost every case it doesn't. In fact, in almost every case, it explicitly closes the door to that kind of you know you know modernity sparing hermeneutics. Um, and you just have to admit that really it's just the reason why you're ignoring those parts is because you don't like what God is saying there. You don't like what it commits you to. You don't like the implications of living in a theocracy. And when you look at the people who attempt such a project, when you look at the Taliban, for instance, it has almost nothing to recommend it. Uh, and it's you know quite hostile to more or less every strategy we found to live a good life in, in the 21st century. So there's an asymmetry there because the, the, the religious liberals, for the most part, you know, in my experience, won't really admit that the the changes in their faith, the it's it's you know it's vaunted you know adaptability and and progressiveness, all of that's coming from outside the faith. I mean, the way I think of the way I put this in the book is that the the doors leading beyond the prison of fundamentalism don't open from the inside. You know, they get they get hammered open by other concerns by you know the the fact that. Where we birth a real science of medicine, right? And so you you no longer have to care what the priest thinks about demonic possession when you realize now that you know your kid is not possessed by Satan. He rather he has epilepsy, right? And so it's that kind of progress, which is truly unidirectional. It it only goes one way. I mean, you know, there are an uncountable number of questions upon which religion used to be the sole authority, but now that authority has been ceded to science or, or medicine or some other wing of culture, there's really no topic 
however marginal, upon which science was once the authority, but now that authority has been appropriately granted to religion. It just it, it, it's a it's a one way forfeiture of of stature and st- and and standing. I just think we have to be honest about that. And, and you know, as you know, I'm very concerned and very interested in you know spiritual experience and what it means to to live a good life and and the the psychological reality of of much of what is talked about in in our contemplative tradition. So you know, there is a baby in the bathwater that that I, I think we we are right to want to to save. But I just think we have to be honest about uh, about you know, the the intellectual and, and ethical trend here. No, I understand what you're saying, uh, but I would argue, as an example, that the analogy is this idea that opinion is equivalent to truth. And we've certainly seen that in modern day life, and it's created this, if you will, false equivalency. And in fact, we see situations where they uh, have a debate between someone who simply has an opinion and oftentimes is not even educated in that particular area in conversation with someone who is a world-renowned expert uh, based on his own work or academic work. It seems as though while you've mentioned the one-way direction, we see instances, though, where people, even scientists, will suddenly become, if you will, fundamentalists. And there are innumerable examples of nominally, quote, normal, unquote, people who you know, go to fight for the Taliban. I still don't understand that, but I was just wondering what your thoughts are. Well, yeah, I do think it comes back to the fact that there is this continuum of experience. There's a way of engaging with the world that brings, or certainly seems to bring, an immense sense of meaning and profundity and awe and, you know, life, life-transforming engagement with the present moment. And this is often only framed in religious terms and then then it's sort of you know just a contingency of of how one happens to stumble upon this change in oneself that dictates what those terms are and so you know what if you are given a buddhist framing as i was you know early in life you know in my late teens and early 20s well, then you, you might do something extreme, like go to India, you know, dry, like drop out of college and, and go to India and spend weeks and months on, on silent meditation retreats, as I did in my 20s. You know, I spent you know, something close to two years on, you know, in silence uh, in, various, in various places and, and, and made many trips to India and Nepal to study with great meditation masters. Now, that's, you know, I'm very happy I did that. You know, there's no... Um, I really have no regrets there. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't consider myself a Buddhist, and I, as I think you know, see these, these, these things in, in a very uh, universalist way, which is, which I believe is is totally compatible with, with modern science, um, which is I, I don't put a religious lens over any of this. But you know, the fact that I, I went through the door of Buddhism, uh, mainly at that point, had certain consequences. But you know, had I been gripped with a similar enthusiasm for you know just breaking out of the ordinary and had it framed by uh, Islam had I come to believe that the Quran you know was or may be the perfect word of the creator of the universe 
Well, then I would have been on a very different path. And, you know, it could have looked something like the path that John Walker Lind took, you know, the, the so-called American Taliban. You know, he was just found in a, you know, in a, in a borough in Afghanistan when, you know, right after September 11th when we invaded. And, you know, it's just, you know, I don't know him and I, I haven't, you know, he's, I think he just got out of prison. I think he was in, I think he's been paroled. Um, I think he's still a fundamentalist, you know, uh, Islamist. But, um, you know, he, I, he, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm just, he, he is a bit of a cipher for me, but I, I can well imagine someone who was psychologically normal, born to a middle-class circumstance, who had other opportunities in life, but nevertheless wanted to do something profound and, and uh, you know, break out of the prison of his thoughts. And, it had, and he, he just happened to find that particular path, which, you know, obviously I, had, I have many critical things to say about that path, but it's just easy to see that it's not that different in the end in, in terms of the initial inspiration that would set one walking down a path like that. Well, do you think, though, that, uh, and you may want not to even respond to this, but do you think that there is a subset of these people who have a yearning or an emptiness inside of themselves that they're trying to fill as being part of a extremist movement or being part of something that they feel is very important and therefore identify with? I think you can even take this as far as, I hate to say, this QAnon phenomenon. Yeah, well, you know, there is the, the phenomenon of, of cults and cultic attachment to specific ideas and to the to the groups that get organized around those ideas, and um, yeah, I mean it has that this group dynamic can have a lot of leverage for people. It is one of those forces that 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 allows people to overcome their sense of of loneliness and isolation and and atomization as a self, right? So there's there's a kind of a fusion with the group that can become psychologically captivating for people. And um, as you said, it, you know, it, some of this can, can easily be understood in evolutionary terms because historically, now going back at least hundreds of thousands of years, we as social primates have had problems with, with groupishness. You know, there, we've, we've had, we've evolved under considerable in-group, out-group pressure. And ironically, our, our capacity for altruism seems to have been only made evolutionarily possible in the context of of, of warring uh, groups, right? It's it's you know, in group altruism makes sense and becomes adaptive in the presence of of other hostile groups, um, you know, with which one is in contest, and that's just kind of the game theory of of the the evolutionary landscape around altruism. But um, it, it religion in that context becomes a, as you said, it becomes a, a way of, uh, of organizing groups that are, that are larger than, than uh, you know, Dunbar's number of around 150, where we're, we're now meeting people who are really not our kin, or you know, we have no reason to believe are our, our, our kin. Uh, the, the, you have the problem of trust and the problem of settling disputes, uh, the problem of reconciling people who've, who have uh, behaved terribly you know, back to the group. And religion, and you know specific ideas within you know various mainstream faiths, allow people to grab a hold of trust and redemption and other you know 
kind of pro-social in-group pro-social mechanisms, and uh, and leverage their out-group fear and hostility in ways that wouldn't really be possible in the same in the in the context of a a belief that isn't that is just that is just terrestrial. You know that's why religion is is more powerful than than politics in the end. You know and and why a resort to holding the same supernatural belief is um, can be quite pragmatic uh, because you know if you, you know if all I know about you is that you're a fellow Christian, well then I can I can operate I can say okay well we, we're on the same team you know we, we know we know nothing about each other we just met but the knowledge that you're a person of the same faith and that you you likely despise those unbelievers in the next valley as much as I do that that gives us a, a basis for trust. Now, obviously, that trust can often be violated, but it is—it's easy to see how these ideologies have have proven useful historically. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in a hostile environment that the evolutionary aspect uh, has been critical. And again, though, it's interesting. It does seem as though the QAnon phenomenon is almost a religion, because many of uh, aspects of it go completely against uh, rational, fundamental knowledge. I know you have some strong feelings as an example about Islam, but I want to ask you, and not that I'm an expert, but um, if you look at different religions, religious texts, you know, within essentially all of them, there are these horrendous statements regarding uh, how one should act in certain circumstances. As one example is, within Islam is, or the Quran is this concept that if you're an apostate, you should die. But there are many statements uh, in the Bible, the Torah, as well as the Quran, that seem to me, and I think you've indicated, that people pick and choose what allows them uh, to function in civil society. So they actually ignore a lot of the most horrendous uh, aspects of these religious texts. But is that really practicing the religion? Yeah, well, I mean, I should clarify my my focus on Islam, at least you know, as it appears in the End of Faith, and I had a subsequent book, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, that I wrote with Majid Nawaz. I'm talking about the obviously the ideas within Islam, and not not the world's 1.9 or whatever it is now, maybe two billion Muslims, who you know, among whom there is a a wide diversity of, of belief and adherence to the faith. Um, it's true that all of these faiths have some terrible parts of their canons, right? And so you could you can find reasons to be a, a total sociopath at odds with modernity, you know, if with reference to almost any religious text. Um, but there are important differences, and it's, it really is not an accident that. The people who profess to be most committed to Islam wind up acting like, you know, Al Qaeda or ISIS or or the Taliban, right? I mean, it's it's like if you said if you look at what, what was happening in Syria and Iraq and Iraq under the Islamic State, and you ask yourself, well, um, how surprising is it? I mean, you read the Quran, you read the Hadith, you read the the biography of Muhammad, you and you say, well, how surprising is it? that uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and all of these people who are taking sex slaves and and killing apostates and 
throwing homosexuals off of rooftops or toppling walls onto them, um, cutting the hands off of thieves. How surprising is this behavior in light of their religious texts? Well, the truth, the only honest answer is, really, it's not surprising at all, because all of it's spelled out in the text. I mean, it's, it, is, it could not be clearer that this was, if not the only way to live so as to be living by the letter of God's law. It is certainly one way to live, and it is an all-too-plausible way to live, given the nature of the books. Um, if you ask the same question about other faiths, if you said, well, you know, these are, these are all Christians here, how surprising is it that these Christians have decided to do all these, these terrible things? Well, it would, it would be more surprising, because it's, you know, I mean, yes, you can get some some, some real motivation for intolerance out of the Bible taken as a whole, uh, you know, as witnessed for several centuries, you know, in under medieval Christendom, right? And and you know, Saint Thomas Aquinas and and Saint Augustine, some of the great lights of of Christianity, were quite intolerant when you got them on the topic of heresy. I, I, one of them, I forget, I have might have this flipped. I think it was Aquinas who thought that heretics should be put to death. I think it was Augustine who thought they should be tortured, and I might have that flipped. But in any case, they had neither had any patience at all for people who would espouse a, you know, a disbelief in God, uh, and their reasoning on this subject laid the groundwork for the Inquisition. Um, so, but but that said, there's enough in the New Testament. In you, know, you get Jesus in half his moods to leaven. The, the basic intolerance. And, and it's still, it would, you know, when we look back at the, under the history of, uh, you know, we look back at the history of Christianity under the, you know, the medieval church and look at the, 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 the mad work of, done by the, the Inquisition, it is pretty surprising to have turned the, the central teachings of Jesus into that. Uh, and it would be surprising to see a bunch of Christians living the way the Islamic State lived. Um, and if you and if you do the do this analysis for a religion like Jainism, right, whose central tenet is nonviolence, right? I mean, do not hurt a fly is the is the precept the the central precept of Jainism. Well, if you if you came into the Islamic state and said, well, these people are Jains, you know, this is these are Jains who are burning people alive in cages, right? Um, that would be that simply would not compute. There'd be no basis upon which to to link this behavior to the actual ideology of Jainism. It's not to say that every Jain in human history has been a pacifist. I'm sure you can find a murderous Jain or two, but it, you can't link it to the doctrine. And so the, these differences are just worth being honest about because this is this, this problem is not going away anytime soon, and and people are powerfully motivated by their religion. Well, I can certainly understand your perspective. It's interesting because on the one hand, you say that there are 1.9 billion people uh, who are Muslims, and I'm sure you have to agree, though, that the vast majority are not extremists or of the Taliban persuasion. They're moderates. But if you look around today in the context of a uh, Christians, uh, there's a subset of very fundamentalist evangelical Christians who are making statements to their congregations uh, that uh, we should kill homosexual or trans people or people who perform abortions. Uh, 
And in fact, uh, there are a number of examples where, in fact, this has been the case. Yet, in that context, uh, you have to agree that the vast majority of Christians are practicing a moderate type of Christianity, uh, analogous to uh, those who are practicing uh, a moderate form of Islam. It's extraordinarily to me, though, that you hear the same evangelical fundamentalists quote the Bible and have a distorted view of the text, which justifies their behavior. I have no doubt that they sincerely believe uh, that uh, they're quote-unquote uh, following the Word of God. Um, I'm not sure to where to go from there. Yeah, well, it's not an accident that they think that, because St. Paul did say that men who lie with men, as though with women, deserve what's coming to them, right, out of the, the Old Testament. And so it's... Um, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not an accident that there's that level of intolerance against homosexuality. Now, it's. I think opinions have changed a lot there, and the Bible is such a vast and self-contradictory book that it, it is easy to pick and choose and and take it, you know, as testimony against itself in various places, and then just sort of make the religion you want. In any in any generation out of it, and it's it's much harder to do that with Islam. It's not. To, I'm not saying that many millions of Muslims don't do that, but it, the, the Quran the Quran is a much shorter book. It is a much more unified message. It's a much simpler uh, communication. Um, you can read it in a weekend. I mean, the Bible. You you know you, you take a year to read the Bible. It's a very different situation, and we lie to ourselves about this. Because we don't want to sound intolerant, we don't want to sound bigoted, um, and uh, and you know, ironically, in doing that, the first people we we uh, abandon and fail to empower are the genuine secularists and moderates within the Muslim world who need all the help they can get. Right, the free thinkers and the aspiring scientists and the real feminists and the you know, and the the atheists who are living in Muslim societies, east and west, who are living in a in a, a context where there's there's incredible intolerance against freedom of thought, you know, and and um, so you know it's like those are the those are the first people I think about when I when I criticize the the excesses of Muslim fundamentalism, I'm thinking about you know women who can't go to school you know girls and girls who can't go to school women who can't drive uh women who can't leave the house without the permission of of you know their husband uh, i mean that's that's a uh that kind of uh slavery really for women exists in a few other contexts in traditional tribal societies but it's but it's honestly mostly muslim contexts right i mean yes you can find some hindu and christian analogs you know not in the west but in you know in in africa for christians and in indian villages but it's um you know it it's a uh, in a hundred countries it is generally a a phenomenon under islam and part of this is just a historical thing. I mean, one way to put this is that, you know, Islam is at a period in its development analogous to where Christianity was, you know, 150 years ago or 200 years ago. Um, so, you know, it may just be a matter of time, but it's, um, 
it's still a pretty invidious comparison to be time shifted to that degree. Well, I don't know if I completely agree with you on that. I certainly am not an expert uh, in this area, but uh, we have seen Christian fundamentalists again espousing uh, a form of uh, patriarchal society. And within their purview or view, uh, women are inferior and are to do what a man says. And in fact, that correlates in the Bible, that type of thinking. But this isn't, you know, a minuscule group of people. I mean, it is there and uh, represents an entire subset of Christianity. But I do understand uh, your perspective and your point. It is, but it's just, it was absolutely true to say that of Christianity some hundreds of years ago, that it, it had a Taliban level intolerance to, let's say, atheism or homosexuality. Um, yeah, that, that was absolutely true, and we're, we're wise to have, have outgrown that to a large degree. And there are still pockets of it. I mean, if you go to, if you look at Christians in sub-Saharan Africa, well then, yeah, you can find some some crazy medievalists who believe in witchcraft and are, you know, performing exorcisms on kids and hunting albinos for the magical properties of their body parts. I mean, it gets crazy, right? But um, in America, say, or in, in you know any way developed country, the most extreme Christians really are a tiny minority. You know, like the rounding error. I mean, like when you when you actually find the Christians in in America who not only just don't approve of gay marriage, but think homosexuals should be killed, right? That is, a, that is the fringe of the fringe. I'm not saying they don't exist, but that, is the, that really is the fringe of the fringe. Uh, but whereas in Muslim-majority countries, you, your life is in peril if you're out of the closet as a gay man or woman in, in, in dozens of societies, right? So it's just a, just a different moment in their history. And uh, you know, hopefully all of that will change. I would comment as an example, having been extensively uh, through the uh, southern part of the United States and in fact living in Mississippi for a number of years, uh, that there are significant pockets in those areas of individuals who still believe in these extremist views in terms of fundamental Christianity. Um, but I think... Um, this discussion of religion uh, is important. And on the next note uh, that I had a question about. Yeah. Actually, Jim, can we just add one piece? Because you mentioned QAnon a few times, and I just wanted to say a couple of things about that. You know, it, as it is with religion, in the case of a, a cult, a political cult like QAnon that espouses manifestly crazy things, like in, the, in in this case, their organizing belief seems to be that the world is being run by a a um, a cult of pedophile, uh, satanic, uh, Satan worshiping cannibals. Really, I mean, they think they're they're not only raping kids, but you know, killing and eating babies, drink, drinking their blood, and I mean, it's just you know, and uh, to to make this even more implausible, the members of this of this coven uh, include people like, you know, uh, Hollywood celebrities like Tom Hanks and Ellen DeGeneres and 
you know, the, the, the Obamas and you know, Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's just, it is just as bonkers as, as bonkers ever gets. Um, so you can ask yourself, I mean, it, it, it seems reasonable to wonder, do these people really believe what they say they believe? And, and, and is there this, is there a kind of a no man's land epistemologically between what people claim to believe and what they really believe? And, and, and does, is, is this a territory of just, um, something more like, um, a verbal loyalty test, you know, where like you're, 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 you're signaling to your group that you are really are a diehard member of the group by claiming to believe the unbelievable. So is, is it more about the profession of these ideas than their actual uh, propositional content? Uh, and the, you know, and I, I don't have an answer. I, I I don't honestly know, but I do I, I do think it's it's reasonable to wonder in this case and, and in the case of of. Uh, fundamentalist religion in many cases, whether there's a some distance between what people claim to believe and and what is in fact, you know, cognitive cognitively operative for them. Well, I mean, certainly, I, I think there's definitely a subset that use these notions to gain power within a group, uh, even though clearly they did they don't believe uh, what they're saying, and you can even look at the claims of. Um, those running for elections, making uh, very extreme claims um, that have not been demonstrated and who keep promoting this narrative and, in fact, reinforcing the beliefs of, as we discussed earlier, uh, QAnon. We probably um, have delved off a little bit but uh, <laughs> in regard to this topic. But the other question I want to ask you is, how do you define uh, free will? Because I remain a little bit confused. Uh, there are a subset of people who say we don't have free will because of the fact that fundamentally our existence is a biochemical process. And if you had all the data, you could predict a behavior in advance. Uh, and therefore, uh, because this is predictable, we cannot have free will. If you were of this persuasion, if you will, no matter what you do, it is in fact defined as not having free will. But there's another group who say there's much more going on uh, beneath our level of consciousness and uh, of which we can't have any understanding of and therefore uh, do not believe in that you have agency. So it's in some ways two explanations of not having free will. Is it this subconscious information, if you will, or data that actually is the motivating factor behind your behaviors, uh, you know, or is this a ridiculous uh, argument that, as an example, somebody who may have had an upset stomach after dinner, they go home and they get in an argument with their uh, spouse and they're upset about it and their actions have nothing to do with the present event but relate to how they felt or how they have emotions uh, related to the argument with their spouse. And I'm sure you've been in interactions which have uh, gone in a negative direction, but in fact, they weren't about you or the present situation. But what happened to individuals earlier or because of the baggage that many people carry uh, from their childhoods? 
Yeah, well, I, I come at this question of, of free will um, at a slightly oblique angle. I mean, for me, free the illusion of free will is is really the flip side of the illusion of self, um, and there and people feel this illusion powerfully. I mean, they they really feel that they have a self, that they are a self in the middle of experience, and uh, that they're acting from this point of view. That they are, in some level, uh, at some level, the, the author of their thoughts and intentions and desires and beliefs, and they're they're not being pushed from behind in any important sense. They're actually they're they're autonomous. They're, they're you know if you if you're deciding what you want to have for lunch, you're looking at the menu and you're thinking, well, maybe it'll be the pasta, or oh, no, maybe I should have a salad. And uh, oh, look, there's there's um, there's a cheeseburger here, man. It's been a long time since I've had a cheeseburger. I'm going to go with the cheeseburger. That whole process feels like something. It feels like me. It feels like I'm doing it. And people are, are emotionally persuaded rather than intellectually persuaded that um, on this basis, there's a real problem to solve philosophically, right? Because what, so when you look at this process objectively when you when you trace its roots back to micro states of the brain and you know moment to moment cascades of neurophysiology and and the, the 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 history that built the system that it was capable of doing those things right so your your genes and the you know, the life experiences that sculpted your nervous system you know how is it that you came to be the sort of person who would want to eat a cheeseburger Right. I mean, you didn't. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick the culture into which you were born. You didn't pick. Uh, did you even pick the 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 city you're living in that brought you to this restaurant? Um, uh, if you trace it back, it it, it just be, in every case, whether you're tracing it back, um, you know, physically, just as as viewing yourself as a, as a system of of atoms, or you trace it back uh, psychologically. Uh, it begins those those lines of influence begin to escape who you are, who you could profess to be in the present moment. You you didn't make yourself, and yet it's on the basis of all that you are in this moment that you will make this next decision or have this next intention or desire arise. Um, and uh, so people feel like okay, I, I f- they feel they have a, a sense of free will. They feel like there's they're the decider. But they recognize that it's difficult to make this square with a scientific picture of the brain and the mind, um, and, it, and it's even, frankly, difficult to square with a an unscientific picture of the brain and the mind. I mean, even if you're going to imagine that there's an, an immortal soul uh, made of ectoplasm dropped into the wheelworks of the brain, you didn't pick your soul, right? You did not decide to have a soul that likes cheeseburgers. Right at no point in your life did you did you create create your soul, uh, and some people have souls that really don't like cheeseburgers at all. Right through no fault of their own, um, and if tomorrow you know you pick up a book about veganism and you get convinced uh, about how morally abhorrent it is to like cheeseburgers, and this causes you to never want a cheeseburger again, you didn't determine that change in yourself. Right, you may have, you you think you decided to pick up the book, but 
you didn't determine the effect it had on you, right? You were bowled over by the argument precisely to the degree that you were, and not even slightly more or less, based on no nothing you did, right? This is something that happened to you. Um, and so the, the, the thing, uh, obviously, this is something that has been understood, the, the, the difficulty of squaring our sense of our personal freedom and autonomy and independence from you know, influence with the actual um, mechanics of things, that, that, that's been understood for centuries. The one piece I would add to this argument that is, is uh, novel from many, you know, from, from many people's point of view is that it, it, we're not left with this mere stalemate between the experience of free will and its and its um, incongruence with uh, with a, a, an objective understanding of the way things work, you can actually get over the illusion. I mean, you you can cut through the illusion of self and its its ostensible freedom, and notice that everything is simply happening, right? You, and and you can't do other than what happens. And yet, yes, it's true that desires and intentions and and thoughts and and efforts are part of the mechanics of things. It's like it's, it's not that you're going to. It's not that you can just wait around and and see what happens. Uh, you know, if if you want to to learn to to play a musical instrument, you can't wait to see if it happens to you, right? The only the, the only way to learn to play a musical instrument is to decide to learn it, to go get the instrument, to take lessons, to practice. You know, all of that is true. But again, all of that is part of the mere unfolding of things happening. And there is no subject, there's no self in the middle of things pulling the strings. In fact, the sense that there is one is just another thing that is appearing in consciousness in this moment. And it's, in fact, it is just this next thought appearing. And you don't know what the next thought is going to be. I mean, it, it just comes as the you know you don't know you don't know what, you don't know what the next sound is going to be, the next thought, the next sensation in your body, the next thing you notice is simply appearing to be noticed, and everything's like that, including our most deliberate actions. And you know, I know I know I've been talking for a long time here, but it takes a, it takes a while to to get this out you know all on the table for for people. Uh, and I would just add one footnote here is that this this does not obviate the other distinctions we want to make in life like you know there there is still a distinction between voluntary and involuntary action right you don't need free will to understand that and there is a distinction between moral and immoral behavior you know and 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 happiness and suffering and so yes yeah, certain people do need to be put in prison because we can't stop them from behaving terribly right and 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 prison is the only way to keep ourselves safe from them so all of this, not not everything falls apart once you relinquish this notion of free will, but a few things do change, and, and we can talk about that if you want to. Well, do you ascribe to um, the fact that though with certain types of practices you can have agency that does not necessarily grant you complete free will, it certainly has an impact on those events that are happening? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, conventionally speaking... A practice like mindfulness gives you more freedom rather than less. I mean, there, there's a, it gives you a degree of freedom that wouldn't otherwise exist. Uh, it doesn't give you free will. 
In fact, if you're really mindful, you can notice that the, the concept of free will doesn't make any sense. But it gives you, you know, it gives you the ability to stop being angry if you want to stop being angry, right? So like, like anger arises, and if you, if you don't know what mindfulness is, if you've never noticed the difference between being lost in thought or being identified with a thought and just noticing a thought as an appearance in consciousness, if that doesn't make any sense to you, you don't even know what I'm talking about there, if you just feel like, wait a minute, this is just me here and I'm angry, um, well, then you're going to be as angry as you'll be for as long as you'll be angry and you have no control over it, really. I mean, you just, you're kind of waiting for the world to save you. You know, you're waiting for your spouse to talk you down or you're waiting for the situation in the, in the world to change so that you can you that you then can feel that your the, the basis for your anger has has dissipated um, or you're just waiting for the, the half-life of the physiology to to uh, demonstrate itself so that you know you eventually you just get worn out by your anger and you get distracted by something else and you're you know now you're watching Game of Thrones and you forgot that you had every good reason to be angry but with mindfulness, you can actually notice anger as a pattern of energy and notice the separate process of thinking about the reasons why you're angry as a, another stream of appearances in consciousness. And notice that the, the attention, the, the, the awareness that is noticing these things is not itself identical to the anger or to the thoughts. And that there's a greater spaciousness in the mind, that the mind is just the condition in which these things are appearing and that they're that the that the the anger as as an emotion as physiology is degrading in every moment that you're not identified with the thoughts about it and in fact the moment you recognize thought as thought and break that spell I mean, you're no longer lost in the dream of of you know rehearsing the argument you had with that person yesterday that's causing you to be angry and so you see the thoughts as images and as language just unravel and you feel the the energy of anger is just this you know this contraction in your chest and the feeling of you know heat in your face you feel that you become interested in that you know, the interest itself is not anger it's just interest right so you're now now you have some different point of view where you're just investigating the nature of your experience in that instant you're no longer angry anger is just this pattern of of energy it begins to dissipate and you recognize that you actually can't stay angry for more than a few moments before it begins to fall apart under the gaze of of mindfulness. So yeah, it it does gives you it gives you this kind of superpower that you can just you can get off the ride almost immediately the moment you recognize it's no longer serving your interests or anyone else's interests for you to stay on it. Um, so yeah, it it gives and conventionally speaking, it does give you freedom. But again. It doesn't give you freedom of will because you know even even once you're you know really well practiced in mindfulness and you can you know, the moment you notice you're anger, angry you can become interested in it and it begins to degrade and you feel you know you can step out of it you know in, in a matter of seconds that it's it's still a mystery fundamentally that it, it that your that capacity arose in that moment and not a moment before or a moment after right i mean some you might have stayed angry for 5 minutes and and then come to your senses you know why wasn't it 4 minutes why wasn't it 6 minutes you are not in a position to know i mean you you're a mere witness of those differences 
and um, and in fact, that's that's something you can recognize as you continue to fall back and merely witness experience unfold. But I think you would agree with practice, though you can make it go from six minutes to four minutes to three minutes to it doesn't occur at all. You know, as a neurosurgeon, my job occasionally can be stressful. And in the operating room, I've developed a practice where no matter what happens, my heart rate doesn't increase, my sympathetic system is not stimulated, and this type of training or practice has been extraordinarily helpful to me. <laughs> surgery, surgery doesn't get better when, when your heart rate goes up to 150. And you know, of course, all of the catecholamines released and cortisol and all the other stuff doesn't work to give you better discernment about decision yeah. making. And so when you do uh, that practice and you have this calmness about you, yeah. then uh, that allows you to actually make the best decisions versus reactive decisions. Yeah, no doubt. But let me ask you a question about mindfulness practice or organized meditation practice. There's a fair amount of data that demonstrates that these types of practices, if you want to call it uh, solo meditation, is that actually 90% of the people stop doing it within 30 days. And I don't know if you're familiar with these statistics. No, but they, they don't surprise me. What do you think that is? Well, it, it's hard to do, in the certainly in the beginning. It's not, um, I mean, I, I would think it's, it's somewhat analogous to physical exercise. I mean, people who go from having no habit of, of working out and they, they, they try to you know, get into lifting weights or jogging or cycling or whatever it is, I would bet there's a, you know, famously, there's a, there's a fairly high level of attrition. You know, when you look at, you know, how, you know, like the business model for gyms, you know, I mean, you know, gym memberships are, you know, famously unused. Exactly. Well, this is, uh, reminds me, uh, and I don't know if you've ever heard of it, uh, uh, Suzanne Summer, uh, the actress used to promote the thigh master and promoting it as helping you decrease the size of your thighs over a period of time if you exercise. But again, studies have shown uh, exercise equipment also uh, results in a very quick drop-off once it's purchased. But the interesting thing about it is that this type of dyadic or talk uh, meditation seems to be much stickier than mindfulness meditation and uh, for many people offer uh, much of the same benefit, if not more. Well, it's guided meditation is incredibly useful. Yeah, I think it because the what's so difficult about meditation is it's very simple practice. Uh, but you know, and in the beginning, you know, the practice is is boiled down to its its simplest form in most cases. I mean, if you're talking about mindfulness, what you're you're told to do in the beginning generally is just pay attention to the sensation of breathing. And every time your mind wanders into thought, you come back to the raw sensation of, of breathing, you know, in and out of the, at the tip of the nose or the rising and falling of your chest and abdomen. And it, it's just people are, are so used to being lost in thought. They're, they're so, the, the conversation they're having with themselves is so incessant that for the, the longest time, they can't. They, they don't even notice how distracted they are. They don't even notice how fully they're failing to pay attention. And once they begin to notice that, once they begin to sense how hard it is to just pay attention to the breath, uh, 
it, be, it becomes it can become very frustrating. It, it can become they can get very restless. It's just not gratifying. Um, it, it suddenly becomes very gratifying the moment you get a little bit of daylight, you know, and and you're you you get some something like you know a modicum of concentration that becomes incredibly pleasant and and peaceful. I mean, it just it is just a fact about us that a concentrated mind is very pleasant. You know, it, and it can be very drug like. I mean, it, it's a um, and this is this is a deviation point. This is a, a point of confusion for people. Once you get get a taste of of the the drug like high of meditation, you begin to think, okay, well, that's what this is about. That's that's the signature of a good meditation. The fact that I'm beginning to feel this blissful, expansive, I can no longer really feel my body sense of of openness. But those changes, of course, are, are temporary. I mean, they, they weren't there a moment ago, and now they're there, and now they're going to go the moment you get off the cushion. Those are really not the point of the practice, but that's that's what can begin to hook people because it, it begins to feel like, okay, this is, this is how I want to feel more and more of the time. This is the opposite of of feeling contracted and anxious and agitated, um, and life would be great if I could just get more and more of this vibe about me. And again, that is a confusion. It's it's that is a a, a deviation from the, the actual logic by which practice will will make a difference for you. But it's it is the kind of thing. It's, it's analogous to you know working out in the gym and and doing it just enough to begin to feel. The real endorphin hit of wow, that felt great, you know, or or to feel to see to look in the mirror and see that your body has begun to change a little bit, and then then you begin to see the the implications of taking it further. Maybe we can segue over to consciousness, and then we'll head to having a conversation about dissolution of the self or the ego. Oh, sure. And actually, dissolution of the ego or loss of self, of course, can certainly correlate with. Uh, different types of meditation or mindfulness practices or Buddhist practices. But we've seen how, whether they're neuroscientists, whether they're philosophers, psychologists, physicists, have used uh, these types of mental training practices um, to answer questions related to consciousness. So can you explain to me from your perspective what you believe are the underpinnings of what we call consciousness, and maybe you could define that first and also define, uh, quote-unquote, the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, well, so consciousness is famously difficult to define. I mean, and most definitions are pretty circular, and that's often viewed as a, a flaw which um, about which we must do something uh, or ignore the the concerns of philosophers at this point, but um, it, which is to say that many scientists uh, have have attempted to def- more or less define consciousness out of existence, you know, and just just basically ram through to some purely physicalist conception of what the brain is doing and and ignore the the so-called hard problem of consciousness. But it's um. I think the best definition given is the one that Thomas Nagel gave in his famous essay, "What is it like to be a bat?" And again, this is this is not a definition that all philosophers love because it is somewhat circular um, and and merely intuitive. But uh, again, this is I think this is where intuitions divide here, and I'm, I'm very much on Nagel's side. 
you know, he 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 says that you know whatever consciousness is, um, if you if you could trade places with a bat, and it's like something, right? If it's if it's not if it's if the lights just don't go out completely, if trading places with a bat is not like trading places with a a toaster oven or a rock or a uh, or the wind, right? You know, which things which we think are probably not conscious. Um, whatever it's like, whether we could ever understand what it's like to be a bat, what it's like to be a bat is consciousness in the case of a bat, right? So, so the feeling of uh, the experience of what it's like to be something is consciousness from the side of that something, whether you're talking about a, a, another person or a conscious computer or a, an alien that just landed on our planet from some other galaxy. If a system is conscious, there's something that it's like from the inside to be that system, whatever that system looks like from the outside. So if you're talking about, and, and, and you know, th this, is, this is where a, a real definition of consciousness breaks apart from, you know, the behaviorism that, that clouded so much scientific thinking for, for the middle, middle part of the 20th century. It's because it, we know that there are systems that can appear conscious which we have no reason to believe are conscious, like a you know a, a very advanced robot, say that is passing the Turing test. You know, it's still it's still reasonable to wonder whether the most advanced robot will be conscious if we don't understand you know how consciousness arises in the first place. Uh, which is to say, you could have a system that can you know understand you know you know voice prompts uh, as well as any human can. You can talk to it. It, it, it might even d display facial emotion credibly, but you know it, it, may, it might not, in fact, be conscious, right? There might there might be nothing that it's like to be that robot. Uh, and conversely, we know there are systems that appear unconscious, that are com completely unresponsive to stimuli, but they're all too conscious. I mean, you, you take someone in, you know close to to your area of expertise, and you know there there are people who suffer. Pontine strokes who who get you know what's called locked in syndrome, and but for the fact that you know some of them can still blink an eyelid, uh, uh, we would have no reason to believe that they're conscious. I mean that that they're they are you know now now we have obviously we have neuroimaging protocols that can distinguish what they're experiencing from a a, a vegetative state, but. You know, for for, the, for some, you you have to imagine throughout history. You know, if this happened to you a few hundred years ago, the people around you would think you know you're either dead or or otherwise not conscious, um, and and they would they would be wrong about that. You know, the the, the that famous book, uh, the the uh, the butterfly and the diving bell, or the diving bell and the butterfly. I always get those reversed. I think, but um, that the um, the, the the French editor of um, I think it was French Vogue, who had a who had a stroke and then blinked out this book with his one of his eyelids, um, uh, you know that it's just an, it's just amazing to the the richness of experience uh, that that was trapped in a a non functional body, so consciousness the 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 the, the cash value of any claim of consciousness. Is what it's like on the inside, not what the system is doing on the outside, and um, uh, and and so once you acknowledge that, you re you recognize that there is in fact no evidence of consciousness in the universe apart from our 
direct experience of it. You know, you, know, you look at a brain. There is we would ne- it would never occur to occur to us that the a brain is the basis of consciousness, but for the fact that we have correlated changes in our own experience of consciousness with changes in the states of our, our brains or the brains of other people. And so it, it's consciousness can only be directly appreciated from its own side and correlated with states of, you know, you know in a third person way with states of various physical systems, in our case, our brains. Uh, and that correlation game has been played for now, uh, you know, you know, many, many decades, you know, you know and a few decades with, with the tools of neuroimaging. Um, and we still don't have a clear neural correlate of consciousness. And we have, we certainly have suggestive areas to, to that we would include, but um, it, there's something that now, you know, pivoting to, to, to the hard problem of consciousness um, so so named by the philosopher David Chalmers, uh, w- w- this effort to correlate consciousness with physical events, you, you know, in our case, uh, you know, specific states of of the brain, um, as an as an effort to explain consciousness, truly explain it in scientific terms, seems on its face to be doomed because. Whatever the the true neural correlate of consciousness is, you know, it's it's always going to be possible to ask, well, why should that be the basis of experience? Why should there be something that it's like to be, you know, a collection of a hundred thousand neurons firing at you know forty hertz, you know, connecting the you know the thalamus and the cortex? Say, um, why should that be the basis of, of the lights going on subjectively, whereas some other collection of neurons firing differently isn't. That seems to be always the statement of, a, of an irreducible mystery and miracle in a way that other scientifically explained phenomenon aren't. I mean, like, like no matter how, how mysterious the, the thing used to be, I mean, take the difference between life and death, you know, a living system and a dead one. Or, you know, the, the the mystery of reproduction. I mean, how is it that 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 biological creatures like ourselves reproduce? You know, what is what explains that physically? These used to be thought to be you know perfect mysteries too, but they really are just complicated mechanics, and we understand those mechanics now. We understand, you know, the the transcription of genes and and. Uh, cell division and metabolism. And I mean, this is, this is all just very complicated uh, details that are, that are in the end, you know, more billiard, billiard balls, you know, colliding. Um, and there is, the mystery really does get reduced once you understand those details. But for, for consciousness, there seems to be this, this disjunction between the the something that it's like on the inside and the the external details that that we're correlating with it and it seems always possible to ask well why would that why should that be the case and it's but you can't ask that of a um a true understanding of well, you know let's say you know the transcription of genes you know you wouldn't say after understanding what genes are and what a ribosome is and what 
amino acids are and what proteins are and what cell structure is. And, and if you build up the whole picture, you wouldn't say, yeah, but how really do you produce a liver at the end of all of that? No, I mean, you, you really can intuitively understand how you get a liver out of all of that once you understand the details. There isn't, there's not the same kind of disjunction uh, that you have with consciousness. Consciousness really does seem analogous to uh, the question of, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? You know, it's like, it's like the, it's, it is analogous. The only other question in science that is as irreducible from my point of view is the question of, you know, how is it, if you, if in fact you believe that, you know, the Big Bang was the true beginning of everything. Now, obviously there are notions of cosmology that, that don't accept this, right? But um, let's just take for argument's sake that some people believe that first there was nothing, truly nothing, and then the universe sprang into being. Well, that is a statement of a miracle, right? That's not a, that's, that, that is not understandable. That's certainly not an explanation of anything, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not true. It may, in fact, be exactly what happened, but it's not understandable. And the emergence of consciousness, the, the, the fact that there's something that it's like to be a system out of unconscious complexity, you know, right? you know, you get a bunch of units processing information together, and there's nothing that it's like to be these units, and then all of a sudden there is, from my, from my point of view and from the point of view of anyone who accepts the hard problem framing of consciousness, that is another statement of a kind of miracle, which is which is not understandable, even when you have the details, even when you say, oh, you need 10,000 units firing at, at 75 hertz over a time course of, you know, 500 milliseconds or whatever, whatever the, 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 the requisites are, that is just, you know, that, that's as, that's as non-explanatory and as incomprehensible as some alternate statement of fact. I mean, what if it's just true that if you get, um, if you get a gust of wind moving through a trailer park at, at 175 miles an hour for a, f a full two hours, the everything in that trailer park becomes conscious provided that the trailers are made of aluminum, right? What if that's just true? Uh, that becomes the basis of a new mind. Okay, that's, you know, I, there's no reason to believe that's true, but let's say we had reason to believe that was true. That would be a miracle. That would not be an explanation of anything. And 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 basically every neuroanatomical explanation of consciousness seems like it's going to have something like that form. And that and that is the that is the concern that is has given us the the hard the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Some people have pointed out to the claustrum as the holder mm -hmm. of consciousness or the ultimate connector. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I know that to be the, I know that to be the case, but I, I just I have not um, I have not encountered any uh, further thinking about that in in recent years. So I I just I don't um, I don't know where that stands. I don't know how many people uh, believe that. Um, I think I mean wasn't it wasn't it Francis Crick who was who was kind of on that case a, a while back? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't know if how the evidence has has uh, 
stacked up in recent years for or against that thesis. So getting back to consciousness, though, uh, there's a premise by many who believe, and perhaps it's analogous to the creation of the universe, that there's nothing and now there's something. But when we die, what happens to our consciousness? There's some people who believe, typically religious people, that um, there's something beyond our understanding, and this gives them comfort that they'll live beyond the, our present physical finite existence, and that this somehow is beyond or is it correlated with the brain? Or is it independent or separate from that lives beyond in this uh, realm of consciousness? Well, it's interesting to consider what beyond could mean. I mean, there are different notions of, of what is possible there. In fact, I recently stumbled upon an argument that um, strikes me as quite novel. It's, it's not it's not 100% original. In fact, there are aspects to it that I've long thought myself, but there was a, there's a pretty unique framing of it that I, uh, I recently spoke about on my own podcast and, and in, in the Waking Up app. Um, and it's uh, it was uh, in an essay by this philosopher Tom Clark, who has a, a website naturalism.org, and um, uh, it's an essay he wrote, he wrote on death uh, and subjectivity, and it's um, it's an interesting argument because it's it's a purely materialistic way of thinking about consciousness as being in some sense eternal and as death being in some sense not the end of anything right and it would take me a minute to to get this this argument up on its feet but is there not that not that many things you have to grant in order to get an intuition of this and so so the first thing that that clark argues and again there there are precursors to this argument uh, both in, in my thinking about this and also just going all the way back to the, the Greeks. I mean, you know, Epicurus, as we find him in, in Lucretius's poem on the nature of things, uh, gives us a part of this. And there are other philosophers who have, who have um, hoed this ground. But, but Clark, Clark frames this in, in a really brilliant way, and, and he adds a piece to it that I, I think is, is uh, original with him. Uh, so he's well worth reading. Uh, but the first thing to grant is that if death is truly the end of consciousness, which is to say the end of experience, well, then the notion of, of it being some kind of oblivion that we fall into is totally misconceived. I mean, there is no falling into anything. It's just there, the end of experience cannot be experienced, right? There will be no experience of oblivion. There'll be no positive absence There'll be no deprivation of experience. It's like turning the TV off. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, there's, but there's nothing. There's no eternal darkness. You know, there's no abyss. The, 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 you know, there's there's nothing waiting for for you, the experiencer, on the other side of death, that will will be that will will be the 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 void uh, that you could that you could possibly fear. Right, so in the same way that you, the the immensity of time before your birth that you had no experience of is not an abyss from which you were plucked, 
right? You did not, you're not, you're not, ex, you did not experience the, the, the 13.7 billion years of your absence before your birth. And you're not going to experience the billions of years of absence after your death. And so there's, there, so this, you know, this that's, that's the first piece, the, 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 this notion of a kind of a positive conception of absence is erroneous, right? And, and, and you know, Lucretius, you know, quote, quoting or purporting to quote Epicurus, said, you know, um, uh, you know, where death is, where death is, I am not, and where I am, death is not. You know, so it's just that there, there's a non-overlapping sets of things, um, if there are any things there. So then you have to recognize that from from its own side, there's a kind of continuity to consciousness that while it admits of the possibility of interruption, interruption itself is not experienced, right? So when, and again, they come very close to your, your wheelhouse, uh, you take general anesthesia, right? The experience of going under general anesthesia is of, you know, the, having the oxygen mask put on and the, and the surgeon, I, I suppose you guys still count back, the anesthesiologist uh, is counting back for you. Why do the anesthesiologists do that? Just to demonstrate that you can't hold on to consciousness? Yes, yes. And, and perhaps uh, to assure the surgeon they're actually asleep. Okay. So, yeah, so you're, you know, that you have the anesthesiologist uh, counting back for you. And then, then all of a sudden you're back. You know, your eyes may be closed. You know, you're in the recovery room or you may feel groggy or uh, otherwise terrible or blissed out or whatever. But, the the you only know about this hiatus uh, of you know in, in some cases many many hours because you can make reference to the clock and you can have conversations with the people out in the world who were you know waiting for you to wake up and all of that but as a matter of of conscious experience the continuum of your experience is actually undivided right it's, it it changes character I mean there can be it feels different to be just waking up from sleep or just waking up from anesthesia. Um, but it's not there, there's not in fact a real gap, right? It's just a, a change, a moment-to-moment -moment change in the character of consciousness. And so Clark asks us to, to contemplate this fact that, you know, there's just whatever happens, whatever story we might have about consciousness being interrupted, and, and in fact it might be interrupted when viewed from outside. Uh, for itself, it is never truly interrupted. There's just, and so in some sense, you, you know, you've always been here from the point of view of consciousness. You, 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 there was no moment at your birth where you thought, God damn, I didn't exist for 13 billion years and now finally I'm here, right? Like there, it, consciousness was always present for itself as itself. And however many times it's been interrupted while you've been alive, it still is continuous. It, it's not. It's not vulnerable to the experience of not being there. You can't have the experience of not being there. You can always. You can only always have the experience of here. It is yet again, right? And um, so when then, then consider the, the moment of death, right? Consider um, what and, and by analogy consider this, right? So imagine if rather than die, imagine that, you know, in, at the end of your life or at some point in your life, 
we put you to sleep, we put you under a general anesthesia, and we, we could just keep you healthily pres preserved in a kind of Rip Van Winkle thought experiment where you're asleep for like 10 years, and then you wake up. Uh, again, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be like just waking up from anesthesia. There'll be no uh, experience of a gap of a decade, even though we, the world you come into will be very different. Um, but now imagine we made some changes to you during that period where you, we gave you, you know, different memories, different beliefs, different desires. Well, you'd wake up, you might be you know, discontinuous with your former self in a variety of ways, but um, there'd still be this subjective continuity from the perspective of consciousness. You'd be, you would still just be consciousness uh, in the presence of slightly different contents. You know, you'd remember things a little differently. You'd, you'd like different foods, maybe. Um, now, if we changed everything about you, you'd be a different person, right? You'd have different memories, different beliefs, different desires. But again, from the point of view of consciousness, there'd still be this continuity. It would be very weird to call that period in which we made those changes a death, right? There's no permanent oblivion to which the first person descended, and out of which the second person got got resurrected. No, there's just this change in the contents of consciousness. So then Clark asks us to you know draw the the implication here, which is, well, how is this different than one person dying and some other person being born? Right? I mean, in one case we have this this cessation, apparent cessation of consciousness, but there's no positive oblivion ever experienced. And then in the other case, we have this appearance of consciousness, which is just this condition in which new phenomenon begin to unravel or un unfurl. Um, how, is, how is that different than this Rip, Rip Van Winkle thought experiment where we've just made fundamental changes in the contents of consciousness in the same person? And so he he's built, and again, this is, uh, I mean, obviously they're, they're quasi-mystical or, or, you know, idealistic versions of this. You could think about consciousness um, in different ways. But even thinking about it purely in a materialistic sense, if consciousness is just something that gets created in physical systems that process information in a certain way, as Tom Clark believes, still, even under this framing, you can imagine that for itself... Consciousness is always present, and you know it's it's and even over the gap, even over a gap of millions of years. I mean, he's you know he asked us to consider what would it be like for all of us to die in our sleep tonight and have consciousness, and let's say you know all conscious creatures die in their sleep tonight, and the light goes out, but then a million years from now on another planet, consciousness is reborn. What is what is that really like? Uh, and it, you know, in, in on his view, it's just it's in some sense it is just as continuous as the thing we're always already experiencing, right? I mean, for itself, consciousness is in some sense always present, whatever its physical basis is, uh, and however temporary or fragile that basis can be made to seem from the outside. So, in any case, I mean, there's you know there there are more, they're spookier and more mystical views on offer. But this is just an interesting way in which a, a purely and, and rigorously materialistic view 
can still give you a sense that, you know, when you're dead, you're not quite dead in this in the way that you that many people intuitively fear. You certainly are not cast into oblivion. You're certainly not there to be deprived of anything. And when you look at what you are really, what it, what is witnessing your experience in this moment, how is that different from that which is witnessing any experience in this moment or will be witnessing any experience in the future? Well, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think that's very interesting on in some level. And you can almost uh, think of a universal consciousness that is yeah. not determined by a single individual and of course, if you made that argument, I think you can justifiably say the separation becomes through, through the experience, uh, but consciousness uh, continues on. Yes, yeah, but just, just to close the loop on that, so essentially what Clark is saying is that you can almost get to this intuition of a universal consciousness without asserting anything metaphysical beyond what, what the most hard-headed materialist would accept, which is just this, is, this, um, this emerges whenever information is processed in any way. It is, it is an, for itself still essentially universal and timeless. No, exactly, exactly. But uh, let me throw a couple things out uh, here at you. Sure. Uh, and you can tell me your thoughts. Sure. There are instances, and while I may remain somewhat skeptical, but they seem to be pretty well documented of children who are born with memories of past lives. Do you ascribe to that? Are, are you skeptical of it also? Is it possible? Was it somehow that quanta of consciousness remained and uh, subsequently entered another consciousness? Or is this just mumbo-jumbo that people create for themselves? Well, I'm I'm certainly skeptical, although I am agnostic in the end. I mean, I'm certainly open to evidence about this and interested in any evidence that exists. But I'm I'm skeptical in that there's um, I mean, so much of the evidence that that does exist is uh, easily discounted, and even those people who have you know done their best to be rigorous here have shown some signs of of not being all that rigorous, right? And so, I mean, the, the person who, you probably know, the person who did the most work on this was Ian Stevenson, who um, I think he was at UVA for most of his life. And he wrote 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation. And he wrote a book on unlearned language, uh, xenoglossy, you know, people who spontaneously start speaking languages they, they s seem to have never studied or even been exposed to. You know, so some of these these anecdotes and case studies are are fairly compelling, but many when you get into the details seem to kind of unravel. And, and you know, I'm, I'm aware of people who have who really dug into some of these. You know, even you know the best cases that Stevenson presented and found a fair amount of scope for deception and self deception and fraud. And I mean, one one thing that's fairly glaring about most of these cases is that they they appear in cultures where a belief in rebirth is you know endemic, right? They're not appearing in cultures where no one believes this stuff for the most part. It's like you're you're, you're talking about India under Hinduism, where everyone believes in reincarnation. And so um, it would be much more compelling to have this happen in a context where no one's ever thought about life in those terms and yet, You've got a child who's 
who's reporting having been a person before and giving details about all of that. Um, but it's, yeah, so I, I think we're right to be skeptical about this. But, um, you know, there are there are spooky stories that, that you know, I haven't, you know, you, you can't you can't debunk everything, and, only, and one only has so much time with which to to pay attention to anything. So I haven't I haven't spent a lot of time on this, but I, I just have I've seen the the forces of of confirmation bias and self deception and, and wishful thinking, you know, uh, at work in this domain as you would expect, because you know many people really want to believe that some version of this is true, even though ironically. The, the the real belief in rebirth, I mean, the the, the um, traditional belief in rebirth, is not a happy story. I mean, the Buddhists and Hindus, for the most part, don't believe re, don't want to believe in rebirth because they think it's such a good thing. Rather, it's a picture of of endless uh, entanglement with suffering. When you actually understand what the the wheel of rebirth and you know the, the wheel of samsara and karma actually means, I mean, like you know, you know any serious Buddhist would say, hey, if there was no such thing as rebirth, and there'd be no problem, right? Like that's, that'd be great news to know that when you're dead, you're dead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, when I hear that, though, uh, to me sometimes I think this is an excuse to take advantage of people uh, who are at a lower caste, if you will, uh, as a way to keep them down without them questioning uh, their situation implying that something they had done in a past life uh, was responsible for their present position. And if they just keep reincarnating while accepting their position, uh, then things are going to get better in a future life. And then uh, the people have put... Oh, yeah. Well, that, that traditionally speaking, that, that's been a very sinister effect of a belief in karma. I mean, you know, that, that has been of a piece with the caste system in India, you know, it's just acceptance of of one's lot in life has been uh, has been motivated by this this idea that yeah you you get exactly what you deserve. You know, the only reason why you're an untouchable and you know sw sweeping the the streets, uh, and I'm a Brahmin who um, you know won't even look at you, is because um, uh, you know, you did so, so many terrible things in your past life, and I did so many good things in mine that, you know, we got exactly what we deserved. Right. Uh, and of course, uh, no, this is a repeating uh, cycle in some ways, because yep, the yep. Brahmins stay Brahmins and the Dalits stay Dalits, right? Hmm. Maybe we can transition to another area. I know we've talked a bit about the illusion of self, which in some ways... Uh, we've been yeah. uh, heading towards. Well, it, it, you know, first you, you have to specify what you mean by self. I mean, we we can mean many things by this term, and and, and there are many ways in which we use this term that really aren't open to any kind of criticism, and they're not. They're certainly not the the name of any illusion. Um, and so, what I'm not I'm not advocating that we we figure out how to talk so as to never make reference to ourselves. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not saying that people are illusions in any straightforward way. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a mystery, really, that, you know, I wake up as me in the morning and I don't wake up as you. And, and it's like, we can differentiate our, our lives and our bodies and our and you know, and our appearance in history and all of that, 
that that's not really the the terrain on which one would make the claim that the self is an illusion or a or a, a mere convention or a construct. Um, it's more it goes it goes to what I was mentioning earlier, which it really is of a piece with the sense of the internal sense of of that free will is is a thing and and has to be understood. Uh, and it's the sense that there is a subject, uh, very likely in our heads, uh, which is the the actual position from which we experience our experience, right? So that we're, most people don't feel identical to their experience. They feel like they're having an experience. They feel like they're appropriating it as a kind of locus of conscious attention and emotion, um, again, very likely in the head, right? So people don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they have bodies for the most part, and they feel like they're kind of riding around in their bodies as though they're up in their heads. Um, and, and they feel this way even when they're practicing meditation for, for a very long time. You know, they're, you know, you're told to meditate, you're told to pay attention to the breath, say, and you close your eyes and you, you begin to feel, you begin to aim your attention at the breath as though there's some place from which you could aim it, right? And, you're, and there's some you that can be doing the aiming. And then the breath is sort of down there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's below you. It's below where you are. You're up in the head and the breath is, is you know, even far away at your nose. You know, even, even though that's only a few inches away, it's not precisely where you are. And, you know, or it's lower down in your abdomen. Um, and so people start observing their experience from that point of view. This, again, is a locus of attention that can be aimed strategically and they can get distracted they can get lost in thought and then 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 you can then that can be noticed and then you come back to the breath um so is that point of view the point of view of being uh, a subject that is vulnerable to inspection right that that's that's the thing that if you pay close enough attention to it that can truly unravel and what you can then notice is that there's only experience Right there is not, you know. Again, I'm not. This is not a metaphysical claim. I'm not talking about, you know, this is consciousness is preceded the Big Bang, or you know, it's you know subsumes the whole cosmos, or that the brain is not involved. Or I mean, I'm not making any claims about the mind-body problem here, or the hard problem of consciousness. I'm just saying, as a matter of experience, there is only what appears, and its appearance is in this condition of consciousness. And the sense that there's a subject there is itself more of an appearance. You know, it's a kind of contraction of energy. You know, for the most part, it's it's what it's like to be identified with thought rather than recognizing thought as thought. And and you can understand this logically, right? You can say, well, the self must feel like something. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel that it existed in the first place, right? I mean, and 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 I certainly couldn't. Feel, I couldn't experience the loss of self, right? I mean, that, you know, this is, uh, the experience of self-transcendence wouldn't be possible because there'd be no experience to change here. So there must be some experience of this thing I'm calling I or me. And if there is an experience there, if it has some kind of sensory or emotional or energetic signature, well, then that must be appearing in consciousness in some way. 
right? It's, uh, otherwise, it couldn't be noticed, right? And if it's appearing in consciousness in some way, well, then consciousness is, as a matter of experience and as, and as a matter of logic, prior to it and not identical to it, right? I mean, in the same way that I can notice a sound and notice that consciousness is prior to that sound and not, not reducible to it, not merely identical to it, uh, you know, the, the fact that I can notice a sound from some point of view of outside the sound itself proves to me that I'm not the, I'm not the sound, right? The sound is an object from, from the point of view of consciousness. Well, then, so too would the sense of self, right? If the sense of self is anything to be noticed, what does consciousness itself feel like, right? It, it's, it, consciousness has to be prior to it and not not identical to this feeling of self. And so that's like, again, that's some, that's not the experience I'm talking about, but that's that kind of a logical framing by which you could notice that consciousness itself doesn't feel like a self because anything that, f anything that you would notice that would be the signature of selfhood is itself an appearance within the frame of consciousness. And so, I mean, another, another analogy I've given here is, um, I mean, many people, I mean, you start, you can start out meditating. And when you think of like the, the analogy to, to the stream of consciousness that you know, we, we got from William James, um, many people take that analogy and they think, well, essentially they're, they're standing on the bank watching the contents of consciousness go by, right? They're observing the stream. But that's not actually the, the, a position you can act, you can occupy. There is no bank. There's only the stream, right? The, the, you're not you're not observing consciousness and its contents from some point of view outside of consciousness and its contents. There's only consciousness and its contents as a matter of experience. And so, what is it like to actually be the stream? Not to not to have a, the sense that you're on the edge of it, looking at it. Right, the the sense that you're on the edge of it, looking at it, is a thought. It's a it's that's a, yet another moment of identification with thought, and when you can really break that spell, when you look for the thinker, and and don't find him, or her, there that that not finding can be decisive. It's not it, it's not a doomed effort. It can actually be consummated, kind of at a glance, where you notice there is no center. To consciousness, and there's no periphery. There's just that this, on some level, is there's just the world, right? There's just the totality of appearances, and you are identical to that. And again, I'm not making a metaphysical claim. I'm talking about the character of consciousness itself. Um, as a matter of experience, you are identical to experience. You're not having an experience, and the sense that you are is a thought. And, and, and so the self is just as, it's, it's this wisp of, of thought in every moment that can be penetrated. And then there is, and then it really can fall away. And in its falling away, there's just this openness. And, and again, and there's no, there's no place from which you would claim free will in that openness either, right? Because the next thing just arises. And it doesn't matter if the next thing is a, is a thought or an intention, or a desire, or a, you know, a clear moment of mindfulness. Uh, it's simply there. There is only what happens, 
right? There's no, there's no place to stand from which you could be pushing or pulling what happens. And again, that, that could be that, that does not dismiss the reality of effort, right? Like you could, you could have this insight even while you're lifting the heaviest weights you've ever lifted in the gym, right? I mean, it's compatible with total effort. You know, you can recognize there's no center to experience in the middle of a bench press, right? So it's, um, on some, on some level, this is this insight is orthogonal to everything else in our lives, but it is the basis for real psychological freedom. Sort of what William James uh, indicated in the I versus me experience, I think he said something along the lines, uh, forming and answers to me, the information is the I. Hmm. I don't actually remember. I mean, I'm sure he... That would have been in his Principles of Psychology, but I, I don't remember that distinction. But um, I mean, James James d definitely had a lot of this already. You know, he's you know he had a lot going on, and he's he was he was brilliant, touching many many topics. But um, there's uh, there's a you know, there's a there's a lot in James that is is still worth reflecting on him. He was just a master of analogies. It's, just, it's amazing how how good a read the principles uh, those two volumes are um, even now. But um, I don't remember that particular point. Let me ask you another question uh, then. We acknowledge that the self is an illusion, and of course, Buddhism, I think, you try to retain a no-self perspective, understanding, though, what is the practical aspects of that if there is well the, the main practical aspect is that that insight into selflessness and you know you, you can also call it emptiness that's a also the the, the standard buddhist framing or you know another, another way to des to describe it is uh, an insight into to non-duality that insight is synonymous with freedom psychologically freedom from suffering, freedom from contraction, freedom from, you know, the, the problem you would otherwise be trying to solve in that moment. And it becomes the basis for, uh, in, in its mere openness to experience in this moment, it becomes the basis for real compassion. And, um, and it is synonymous with the, the unhooking from, from negative emotion that we described earlier, you know, it's like you, you can get there with sort of ordinary, ordinary dualistic mindfulness too, but it is it is also the the clearest way to to cut off this experience of of you know anger or fear or whatever is motivating you in 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 the, the previous moment to to be antisocial or otherwise neurotic. Um, and so when you're when you're talking about what it's like to wake up from the dream of self, it is largely a matter of waking up from the dream of negative emotion and false hopes and fear and you know anxiety about the future and you know everything else that ails us psychologically and becoming available to really beginning again in the next moment as though everything were new because everything is potentially new. You know, it's just, this is not, no matter how many times you've had a similar experience, you haven't really had this one. Well, you know, that's interesting because obviously you've meditated for a number of decades, as I have, 
but it doesn't go completely away. I mean, I don't know if that's, if you feel the same way, certainly. I, I mean, you can at least, uh, for me, I can approximate that. I can have deep compassion. I can have a sense of selflessness. But periodically, these, if you want to call uh, them negative emotions or states, still sit back there. And in fact, sometimes it takes, I'm not sure if it's conscious effort, uh, if that's the correct term, but it takes effort to be focused in that space and not in other spaces. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I would consider myself still very much a work in progress here. So it's, it is true to say that negative emotions of every flavor continue to arise, but the 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 difference that that meditation has made for me is that their half-life is much much shorter right i mean i can just the, the moment i begin to feel miserable for in any way that tends to be a kind of mindfulness alarm for me where then i then i can just then it just is a uh, an indication that something's happening that i need to pay attention to right and it's not to say that I can't get rocked by some, you know, major negative thing happening in my life, or even some minor thing that I that I care about for some reason, you know, more than I should. But the but I I can continually break that spell the moment I notice, you know, that I'm thinking. Right? It's always a story of being lost in thought. You know, if you're suffering, you're thinking. You know, you're thinking about something, you're thinking about the future. And the truth is, even in the presence of physical pain, the real, the, 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 the real component of suffering is the fear of, of having to endure this in the future, the fear of what it means, the fear of, oh, like, am I going to feel this way for the rest of my life? Is this, is this cancer? I mean, like, like all the thoughts that come, that come to you in the presence of that pain, um, you know, I'm not saying that that uh, I'm not going to take pain pills when I'm in excruciating pain, but it, you know, it, it is amazing how much the 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 framing uh, we put around pain matters to the experience itself. And um, I mean, if you've had ever had a deep tissue massage that you've actually paid good money for, right? And you want you wanted it, you know, you, you wanted that experience. You know, that it, it can be incredibly painful. If you had that same sensation associated with some disease for which you had just been diagnosed, um, you know that would be the worst thing ever, right? You certainly wouldn't have paid for the experience. Um, so it's it's uh, what you think really matters, and so breaking the spell of identification with thought is is you know always the remedy. It's not, I'm not I'm not saying that there's never anything worth thinking about. I mean, the thing you know th think about things as long as it's useful to think about them. You know, you, you, you need to figure out what you're going to do, right? You, you, you think, oh my God, I, I've got this symptom. I need to see a doctor. Which doctor? Okay, this doctor. Okay, when's the appointment? Okay, now it's on the calendar. Okay, now what Now what are you doing with your mind? You know, the do the appointment's on the calendar. You Now you have two weeks, right? You, could, you couldn't get in, in to see Dr. Doty for two weeks, probably longer. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's if you had some connection, right? Uh, but how miserable are you going to be for two weeks, right? That that story will be told entirely 
at the level of your thoughts, at the level of how fully you were entangled with your thoughts and, and what they specifically were. And the, the remedy for that purgatory and pandemonium is mindfulness. It's an ability to notice a thought as a thought and let go of it when there's nothing worth thinking about. You know, I think you're absolutely correct. It's interesting as an example. Um, in the mornings, my wife uh, takes a cold dip in the pool, and it's ice cold, and she's trying to emulate Wim Hof and his experience. But she'll stand by the pool for a few minutes before she steps in, and watching that, it's evident that that is uh, painful versus, for example, not, um, if you will, being afraid, which preconditions you to reaction, but simply to walk in. And that seems like a much better experience. Let me ask another question. We can wind up here. Uh, people, of course, are now talking about the use of psychedelics for a variety of experiences and oftentimes put in, in the context of dissolution of the ego or a, quote, reset, unquote. And a lot of uh, who we are today is from the experiences of our childhood and our adolescence uh, related to bonding and attachment. Do you ascribe to the philosophy that you could do this reset, if you will, and take your attachments uh, of self away so that you can alleviate yourself from this previously fixed view of who you are? Well, so I'm, I'm someone for whom psychedelics have been really valuable and, and perhaps even indispensable because I, you know, and like many people, I only became interested in meditation because of some experiences I had first uh, with psychedelics. And I, I don't honestly know whether I would have been um, a great candidate for becoming interested in meditation otherwise, right? So the thing that psychedelics can give you, if you, if you have a good experience, I mean, obviously you can have a bad experience and you you can have an experience that that perfectly mimics you know, profound mental illness, and you can you, you just it can be absolutely harrowing, and you you could come away thinking, all right, I'm never doing that again. Um, but if you have a good experience, which is to say, one that that brings you in touch with with the, the positive end of the continuum of of uh, human experience, such that at least at least in part, you feel like you come away feeling. Wow, that is that it's possible to be much happier and wiser and freer than I've been tending to be, right? You like that that is that is the reference point, a new reference point that you can be given by by uh, plunging into one of these experiences. Um, and that has in my case and in the case of you know, millions of other people, that is the the role, the crucial role, Played because you know again all experiences specific experiences are temporary right you know there's a this line in the Buddha's teachings that everything that has the nature to arise will also pass away right so anything by virtue of the fact that it has arisen will pass away any good state of mind any bad state of mind right it's just it's so so you you can't actually pin your hopes in a specific experience because experience is impermanent, 
right? So it's it's the, the, the thing that ultimately to be re realized is a new relationship to experience itself, a new way of seeing, a new way of being. And you, while you can't quite get that through psychedelics, because again, any changes wrought through that change in 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 neurophysiology will be temporary, right? You know, an acid trip will last, you know, 12 to 14 hours. A psilocybin trip will last four to six hours. And then you'll come down. But you you will, in the best case, you'll come down with a memory and a new of something profoundly different and profoundly healthy seeming psychologically. And that will become a new reference point about which you will want to do something because you 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 know back in your normal life and your normal waking consciousness you may feel pretty far from that that reference point um and so then you may develop an interest in in meditation the, the real difference i mean the re reason why psychedelics are are not the same as meditation as a project is that it comes down to this this difference in in focus in changing the contents of consciousness. I mean, so you you take psilocybin or you take acid or you take MDMA, which is not really a psychedelic, but it's a still a profoundly useful experience to have. Um, you know, the 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 signature of these things working is a, a wholesale change in the contents of consciousness. You know, you 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 you, t you take this at at one time point, and then you're waiting for something to happen, right? And then the immense power of these chemicals is that something will happen, right? Like, you know, like, and, and there's a guarantee of effect, you know, again, for good or for ill, because, you know, obviously you, we can't ignore the possibility of having a bad trip, but something will happen, right? It, which, is, which is not a guarantee I can give you with respect to meditation, you know? And if you told me to meditate, before I had ever had a psychedelic experience, and you know, you, you had given me the method, let's say, of, of you know, ordinary mindfulness. You told me to close my eyes and begin to pay attention to my breath. I'm pretty sure, as the as the 18 year old skeptic that I was, um, I'm pretty sure that I, I would not have had some natural talent for concentration at that point, and I would have spent the entire time thinking with my eyes closed uh, and thinking quite skeptical thoughts about, you know, what's the point of all this? You know, what am I doing here? This is not even, this is not fun. This is not interesting. You know, how much time is left on the clock? And I would have come away thinking there was no there there, right? There was nothing to realize, you know, and that's not going to happen with a hundred micrograms of LSD or you know, a few grams of, of magic mushrooms or, it's just not. And so that guarantee of effect is is a clue as to why psychedelics are, are so profoundly useful. And they, um, yeah, in, in the best case, these these changes in consciousness do, do advertise a fundamentally different way of being in the world and a different relationship one can have to even, you know, the profound suffering one may have experienced earlier in life. Uh, and it can be incredibly healing, uh, but again, it's temporary, right? So then you then you have a memory of what was healing about it all.
right in the best case and a new a new conceptual frame with which to to view your current experience and yeah, i mean it can be i have i have no doubt that, i mean you know, as you know the 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 research is is looking incredibly promising for specifically psilocybin and mdma as a treatment for depression and ptsd and uh, end of life um, you know death anxiety um, and so yeah I, there's no question about the promise here and and you know given my experiences with these compounds i mean it's just it's um yeah there's a, there's just no question that uh, that they're they're valuable components to a person's practice i, I would just say that the important thing to realize is that the the insights I've been describing into you know, selflessness, say, um, are compatible, are available, uh, and compatible with ordinary waking consciousness. Right? Nothing about your experience in this moment has to change for you to recognize that there's no center to it, and that you're identical to it, and that there's a freedom intrinsic. To that, there's no there's no feeling of bliss that has to come flooding in. There's no change in the in the energetics of experience. You don't have to feel like you just you, you know that you're you can't differentiate your body from the natural world. As I mean, you can have incredible experiences of merging with with nature. Say under psilocybin, right? You can you know you take you take a few grams of mushrooms and then take a walk in Muir Woods. And I mean, that's about as spectacular an engagement with nature as you could ever hope to have. And you, you know, you put your hands against a, you know, a redwood and you can feel that you have fully merged with it as a life form. I mean, you're the life energy of your body becomes continuous with the, the life energy of the forest, right? That's an experience that is on the menu. Definitely. But there is a way to recognize that ordinary consciousness, precisely the consciousness from which you would then, you would just check your email in this moment, is totally empty of self and totally boundaryless and free. And in principle, not improved when you suddenly feel the, the psilocybin hit and you become continuous with the forest, right? And so that's the... The difference between meditation and and psychedelics. It's there. There's the t the ultimate target of meditation is the insight into emptiness that's compatible with having a conversation like this. You know, if I were on four grams of mushrooms right now, I would not be able to find my desk or the computer or the microphone, and I certainly wouldn't be able to string two sentences together to have a conversation like this. And that's that's a that's a difference. It can't. We can't inhabit that space permanently because we have to function in the world. Well, you know, it's interesting just to make a couple of comments. One is I had no particular interest in psychedelics, and while I won't go through all the details, I ended up recently trying a variety, and what I found uh, was a couple of things. One is that your fear state, your anxiety, versus having a approach with a lack of attachment to the experience has a profound effect on the experience. The other is that while certain aspects of it were certainly interesting, I could simply go to the same place uh, through a meditation practice. So while it's interesting, I'm not necessarily sure if it's actually profound. 
In fact, it's different from being in a place where I want to be through meditation, though. The other thing is that this experience for some people is that they have a degree of suffering, and then they have this profound experience with the psychedelic. And of course, as you pointed out, it's a transitory experience, but because of this positive effect, they want to go back and have it again versus living in the real world, if you will. And they find that they cannot repeat that same experience, and they actually get much worse in regard to their mental state or the suffering that they had experienced. And this leads to this uh, attachment or craving to that prior experience versus the reality uh, of these experiences occurring for them, but accepting that, in fact, they're transitory. Yeah, no, that that can be a liability here. I mean, just you know, I think you can. I'm sure in a therapeutic context, that can be the risk of that happening can be diminished. But yeah, I, w- I would grant you that's that's a possible um, uh, deviation point here in in using psychedelics to to help heal yourself. Well, Sam, uh, what a broad conversation. We obviously talked for quite some time, but I'm sure we didn't cover everything. No doubt. No doubt. We, we, co- we covered everything. Uh, everything in samsara, I would say, we have covered. Well, that's a good thing. I very much appreciate your time, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with me and our listeners, because, you know, it's always good to learn and see the world through another person's eyes, if you will. So take care, and uh, it was great speaking with you. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Jim. Uh, wish you the best of luck with everything, and it's great, great to connect yet again. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music